This is World Smart, a podcast of the Aaron Fox Law Firm, with your hosts and Aaron Fox International Practice Group co-chairs, Hunter Carter and Malcolm McNeil. We'll be talking with special guests and partners about topics of interest in the law of international business. Well, Malcolm, good evening and hello. How are you doing? I'm doing great and good evening to you, Hunter, coast to coast, huh? It's pretty exciting. We've got the uh, two coasts covered and the whole world, too. This is the inaugural podcast of World Smart, brought to you by Aaron Fox International, Smart in Your World. And I'm pretty excited. I think this series of interviews that we're going to do with some of our colleagues, as well as clients and other folks that we know, could really be informative and fun, don't you? Absolutely. And that's the whole idea. Our goal here is to blend some knowledge, information, a little bit of fun, a little bit of levity, and so that everybody who listens walks away with a good takeaway that was enjoyable to watch and hear. Wait a minute, did you say fun? Aren't we lawyers? How are we supposed to have fun? It's shocking when we use the word fun in what we do, and that's why I throw it in there for controversy. Well, we do have a lot of fun in our group, and it's fun to represent clients out in the international space. But I know that one thing that is considered fun all around the world is the subject of our first interview, which is football. We Americans like to call it soccer. And I know we're thrilled to have with us as our first guest, our new partner, Bill Ordauer. Bill, who comes to us from Major League Soccer and has a career in the legal side of the sport, has really opened my eyes to a lot of things. You know, I don't know about you, Malcolm, but I'm not the biggest football fan in the world. I, I come together with absolutely everyone else on the planet whenever the World Cup comes around. Are you more of a fan? Well, I've sort of had to become more of a fan. As you know, I'm past president of a European association, so wherever I went, we'd usually attend a game. So I started learning things about Manchester United, and I learned the name Messi. In other words, I, wherever I went, I'd pick up nuggets here and there, and I actually got to enjoy the game better than I thought I would because my European friends always complain about baseball, but I ended up liking soccer too. I have a lot of happy football memories as an accidental fan. One of them was I was in uh, Kiev on a corporate internal investigation and various different parties that were involved in it all gathered together in what, if I remember correctly, was a Scottish pub. And we watched Man U play Real Madrid. And uh, Ronaldo scored, I I think, like five goals. It was just this amazing bloodbath of a game. And it uh, really changed things. It really brought everyone together who were otherwise still on the edge or adversarial. Football has a way of bringing people together. So uh, what do you say? Why don't we turn to Bill and uh, kick things off? That'd be great. Hey, Bill. Welcome. Uh, you've heard the uh, little banter Malcolm and I have been having here. Uh, football has a way of bringing people together. How did you get involved? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me as part of the inaugural podcast. I'm excited to be here and, and share in on some of this fun. You know, I came to be here, I think, like a lot of aspiring lawyers where there was an interest in the sports world, but we didn't have enough talent to be successful on the field. And so I decided to try to pursue it through the other path. And to be honest, I went straight from law school to Major League Soccer. I thought it was going to be a great job for three or four years before the league folded. And then 23 years later, I was still there. And it was phenomenal to be part of the growth of the game in the U.S. in particular. Yeah, very interesting. How would you describe how Americans have received soccer over time? You said you thought it might fold after three or four years. You know, we have a different kind of football here. Of course, we love sports of every kind. Has soccer's success in the U.S. surprised you? 
I don't know if it's surprised me. You know, I think it's funny. People have been calling soccer the sport of the future since the 1970s. But I think that now you're at this turning point in the country in terms of demographics where it's really picked up, right? You have so many more people from so many different walks of life that have grown up as soccer being part of their lives. And now it's starting to take the next step because people who are now in executive positions are the ones that grew up playing in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And so they're taking that love of the game and they're saying, you know what, there are things that are really special about this that you don't get from other sports. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty sophisticated business, uh, you were telling me, especially here in the U.S., where other sports are also very sophisticated businesses. Talk to us about that. And is that the same thing around the world? Or do you think there are important differences in different regions? What's interesting is North America overall is probably the most sophisticated on the business side of sports. And I think where the soccer world is the technical side is more sophisticated than the rest of the world. So you have ownership and executives in the U.S. that are trying to get the level of play on the field up to the standards of the rest of the world. But then when you go to Europe or South America, they look and they say, oh, my gosh, how can we do what they've done in the U.S. on the other side of it? And, you know, you talked about attending games in Kiev or other places overseas. You were probably surprised by the lack of fanfare at the stadium, right? You didn't have a ton of hospitality and food options like you do when you go to any sport in the U.S. And those are things that have been slower to translate internationally. And so I think there's things to be learned on both sides of it. I had a question because you mentioned 60s, 70s and 80s. And, yeah, I became, let's say, aware of what was going to be the immediate soccer boon in the 80s when my daughter was a member of AYSO and went to school. And I remember one predictor was that by the year 2000, soccer would take over all major sports. I guess the question is how and, and of course, that prediction didn't come true, at least in the United States. So I guess the question is, how has that impacted the business elements of the business? In other words, do American companies go overseas looking for opportunities or are the let's say the Europeans and South America coming to the U.S. to look for opportunities? How is that panning out in your experience? Well, you still have so many global national sponsors that, right, they, they are certainly going overseas and recognizing it there, but they also see that the growth of the game is on this incredible trajectory here in the U.S. So I think at times they're really able to combine it, right? They're able to take a sponsorship with FIFA for the World Cup and or premier teams internationally, but they also see why it makes sense to invest here. And one of the more interesting points will be the 2026 World Cup, right, which will be held in the U.S. The 1994 World Cup, which was the last time the U.S. hosted, is still the most financially successful World Cup in history. So the idea of now seeing what's going to happen, you know, a couple decades later, I think is just going to be unfathomable in terms of what kind of revenue that's going to generate. We often read around sports, whether it's Super Bowl ads or what have you, um, the tremendous amount of money that players are paid and the tremendous amount of money that people pay as investors to be part of a club or to own a league. Tell us a little bit about how international is 
that investment world. In other words, of course, many players move from country to country to join teams like in the premiership leagues and so forth and then play for their national team when the World Cup comes around. But is there a real international participation in team ownership? So that's a great question, Hunter. Today, we are seeing a lot of investment from the U.S. overseas. And in particular, it seems to be driven in in Europe and in particularly in the UK, but there's a lot of investment in Italy and elsewhere. I think it's just recognizing the power of the sport worldwide. And you have very sophisticated businessmen that are doing so well. And it ties back to the earlier part of our conversation, which is these are companies and organizations that run the business side of the sport well. So they see an opportunity to now take it overseas to bring some of these American practices there and to bring it to a greater level. So who are the investors? Who is investing in teams? For the most part, today you're seeing a lot of investors that are already invested in the sports world. Companies like the Anschutz Entertainment Group, they have investments in multiple leagues internationally. You're seeing NFL owners who are building on their sports portfolio and moving it into soccer and you know, essentially soccer overseas is what the NFL is here today. I've had a lot of conversations recently with folks with hedge funds that are looking for the next big investment idea and how can they take advantage of it. And they're exploring, you know, where are these opportunities now? And does it make sense to buy in at the top level at the Premier League or does it make sense particularly in parts of the world where they have promotion and relegation, to make an investment in a lower division club and build it up to the point where it advances up till then it hits the Premier League or the Bundesliga or, you know, whichever country they're in. Is the legal management of those investments, is that very complicated? Is it like buying other kinds of investments? It's the same basic premise, but you have to... Be aware of how the leagues themselves are structured and and the rules that go into that. But overall, it's kind of the same type of work, but it certainly helps to have an expertise in understanding the world of soccer and the interactions and the complex rules in dealing with FIFA and dealing with each country's federations. That's certainly something that we're able to bring to the table. I would imagine that investor returns are subject to a lot of external factors that are beyond the investor's control and maybe even beyond the control of the team investors buy into, you know, factors like league rules and and changes in league rules. Who governs the leagues, for example? In terms of governing the leagues, there's generally pretty strong league offices for the major leagues that are driving what those rules are. And you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a ton of factors. We've seen it certainly this past year with COVID that has had an unbelievably big impact on every sport, but you also see it in other areas like sports betting. And you see, if you take North America, for example, for a long time, it was Absolutely nothing to do with gambling. Every league took a very strict stance, which was we're going to keep that world separate. And then suddenly you have the Supreme Court overturning PASPA, and now it became acceptable, right? And states started legalizing sports betting, and suddenly there was a rush from every major league to figure out how to 
take advantage of that. And the leagues had to create rules to determine how are we going to help or hinder our clubs from generating revenue in that space. I'm sure there's no end of surprises when you're dealing, as you were as general counsel for Major League Soccer, as the chief legal officer to a league or even to a team. But man, the world could never have been prepared for anything like the surprise that was delivered by COVID, where suddenly people can't get together. That's the whole point of getting into stadiums. How has soccer, both in the U.S. and worldwide, responded to COVID? So you're right. I mean, COVID has been devastating to it. And, you know, in particular, I think what soccer brings is this idea of this tribal community, right? This idea of being in stadium and standing and cheering for a full 90 minutes, right? That's something that's just unique that you don't necessarily see in other professional sports. And so to take that away, right, there's certainly a damage to the psyche. But a lot of it also depends then on what the values of the media deals are, right? If you have a large enough media deal, you can survive not having fans in the stadium. In the U.S., your media deal in the soccer world is not the same as it is for the NFL. You're very heavily reliant on ticket revenues and what's going on in stadium. And particularly when you drop down to minor league level or the second and third division, right, that is just these owners are losing a ton of money, but they feel like you can't just go dark in this environment, right? Every sport is trying to figure out a way to stay in it and to stay relevant. And so they're just, right, they're coming out of pocket and they're losing a lot of money on this front, which, you know, goes back to part of our earlier conversation, which there are really some great investment opportunities right now. If you believe, like I do, that soccer is going to continue to progress and that value of it is going to continue to, to increase, then right now when you have clubs that are really hurting for revenue, it would be a great time to make an investment in the space in the United States. I hear people tell me the same thing about real estate in New York, but that's not something I want to hear very well since I'm an apartment owner in New York. Um, <laughs> But do you think there are what, what sorts of things are on people's lips or minds as possible changes that you expect to see in the coming year in reaction to the fact that there will be recovery from COVID? What will people be doing to get more viewership, to get better media deals, to fill stadiums, to sell more sodas and T-shirts? I think if I had the answer to that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'd be in very high demand. Maybe your clients know and you shouldn't tell. <laughs> uh, you know, there's definitely going to be adjustments that are being made. I don't know what they are today, right? There may be seating modifications in terms of how the stadiums are doing that. I was going to ask a question sort of along those same lines regarding COVID, and that is, yeah, have there been any teams that have felt such financial distress that they had to go into reorganization or anything like that uh, as a result of COVID? Because, of course, I'm sure there are good deals out there for teams that are cash strapped. But what's that look like? And where does somebody go to look for those opportunities? Is there a business broker that deals with uh, soccer teams or where, where would you go to look for those opportunities? So the answer is, yes, these opportunities exist. I think we will see more of these opportunities over the next year as as ownership is doing what they can to hold on. But to the extent this continues and you're not able to get fans back in stadiums, you'll start to see a little bit more of it. You know, this is an area where you have to be a little tapped in. And so 
someone like myself who has a lot of connections in this world is certainly able to advise. But, you know, the leagues themselves are also a good place to contact because they have an idea of, of where there's a need and they're always willing to match make. As general counsel for Major League Soccer, I'm sure you handled every possible different kind of legal issue. You know, if there's labor issues, there's, you know, capital and investment like we've been talking about and so forth. What's your favorite? What is it that you like most about being a lawyer in soccer? I might be in the minority on this one. I really enjoyed the collective bargaining process. I found that when you're a fan of it, right, and you sort of hear about what's going on, it seems so mysterious and there's so few people and it's kept to such a tight circle. And then when you get into it, it's just a really fascinating process of the back and forth and dealing with the personalities and ownerships priorities versus the players' priorities and how they ultimately get together. And I just found it to be a really, really interesting process. How are labor relations in, in soccer, at least in the U.S. these days? When compared to other sports, I think that the labor relations, at least at Major League Soccer, are pretty strong. Once again, this is another area where I think COVID played a factor. I think it's created a, a bit of strain because you're having so many unexpected losses of revenue from ownership. And when you go through a complicated collective bargaining process, I'm sure from the player side of it, the idea of reopening that discussion because of unforeseen circumstances is not top on your list. Well, I guess the only thing that I would say is because of what I perceived, and this is anecdotal, what I perceived as a lag in the taking off of soccer and the enthusiastic attitudes that people had. And when Beckham came to California and all of that, it didn't seem to hold, Bill. Am I missing something because I'm not in that realm? Or is there something that is there too much competition among other major league sports in the United States, which is unlike many countries, most countries. Uh, what has been the reason for the lag? Was there any analysis done of that or did you form your own opinion as GC? Well, I'm not sure that there is a lag. I do think it comes down to the fact that, to be frank, Malcolm, you and Hunter are not the demographic for soccer in the United States, nor am I at this point. And I have this conversation with friends of mine and we're all sitting in, in our 40s and 50s at this point And they're like, I just, I don't see it. Like, I don't understand where are they advertising this? Why are they not appealing to me? And uh -huh. the demographic for soccer is the youngest of all the major sports. And there is something that is being captured in that world, right? And it goes back to Something we said earlier about that it's tribal. It's a bit counterculture. It is bringing people together in a different way than, than some of the other sports because you're part of more of a community where you're chanting and singing as opposed to gathering in a bar and watching and complaining, right? You're almost part of the on-field action. So For the I record, do I don't gather in a bar and watch or complain any sport, um, but I probably am in the demographics that you were talking about. But as I listen to you, Bill, I remember that they say about automobile marketing that brand loyalty starts young and that you want to get someone to like your particular brand early on for your particular automobile. Do you think that that's going to be a key to soccer's future success, that the younger demographic embracing it now will continue to hold on to it while newer generations are added? 
Certainly. I think when you look at a sport like baseball, I think a lot of their success is the fact that it's passed from father to son. Because otherwise, I think baseball has a very difficult path ahead, right? I mean, I look at my kids playing and they had a choice between playing baseball where they were standing around a lot or playing lacrosse which was constant movement, constant action, just like soccer. And it wasn't even a close decision for them. But it doesn't change the fact that we can still go to a baseball game together because I grew up a big baseball fan and from St. Louis, and that was part of that world. And so you embrace it. So I think similarly, that is certainly something that will drive the soccer world too, which is this generational bond. Let's switch gears a little bit. I mean, I, I like to talk a little bit about what are the trends in uh, sports betting and uh, internationally. Uh, do, do you have any thoughts on that and, and what's happening? And because I periodically get clients telling me they want to, there's still once in a while a one that wants to set up a gaming website and things like that. And what are the regulations? How about a little overview on that and what you're seeing today? You know, sports betting is the shiny new toy for sure. And both at the state level in terms of regulation, they're looking at it and saying, hey, this could be a huge revenue driver for us. And similarly, when you look at sports teams, they are also saying this can be an incredible revenue generator for us. And it's interesting when you look at it in the U.S. as compared to overseas, it's almost flipped like right now, it's a bit of the Wild West and people want to really open it up and allow for it to be exploited in a, in a lot of different ways. And overseas, we're starting to see pushback on that. And how do we pull back from it being oversaturated? And if you look at a country like England, they have gone through and there's now a prohibition on gambling advertising during the game itself from whistle to whistle. And they're looking at eliminating it from shirt sponsorship, which would have a huge revenue impact on a lot of clubs there. And then we flip back to the U.S. and it's about how do we open this up more? How do we generate revenue if it's on Jersey? How can we get more advertising, right? When you're watching any game right now, you're still seeing the advertising for DraftKings, for FanDuel, for, you know, BetMGM. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I know from travels that you, it seems that it is more pronounced. Uh, I, I was just recently watching a show on Netflix uh, called Dogs of Berlin. I don't want to give it a plug, but maybe I should give it a plug. But it surrounds soccer game and the betting world surrounding soccer. And not only with legal, but also illegal betting and the confluence between the struggles between both the betting and non-betting world. Is it that it is easier to bet off track in Europe than it is here? I'm sorry I'm now saying that this from someone who only visits Las Vegas for gambling and doesn't do anything else. It's easier to bet everywhere in Europe today. What was interesting when I was at Major League Soccer and I was responsible for putting together the rules that would govern how the league would deal with betting is when compared to the other North American leagues like the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, they were taking a little bit more cautious approach because betting is so prevalent in the soccer world overseas. It was an easier sell, right? If you go to a match in Europe, you're able to place bets throughout the game. And that's just part and parcel. If you look at just about any team jersey, you're able to see some betting sponsor associated with that. It was easier for us to say, look, 
this has always been part of it in the soccer world. So we could probably be a little bit more aggressive in that regard. Interesting. Well, plus I imagine soccer is looking to build its revenues. It's a little bit behind the other big leagues in North America. So why not use that advantage that you have internationally, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is another thing now when you asked the question earlier about how a sport's going to get back on track post COVID. It is about finding other revenue sources. I think sports betting is going to be one of those where every league is going to probably move a little faster than they might otherwise like to in terms of having betting in stadium in order to try to offset some of those losses. And you may see it in other non-traditional sponsorship areas like cannabis and CBD, right? I think you'll see a little bit more willingness to experiment with some areas that were always a bit verboten. Well, it sounds like you've lived uh, for quite a while now on the cutting edge of some legal issues around the business of sports. It's terrific to have you here at Aaron Fox, and it's been terrific to have you here on our debut podcast, uh, World Smart. So thank you very much, Bill, for your insights, and uh, looking forward to working with you and maybe helping uh, find some of our uh, Latin American or Asian investor clients or whatever to, to work with you. I look forward to that chance. I would add to that that, well, I'm out here, obviously, in glorious L.A., which is also known as Hollywood. Uh, you know, we have our entertainment clients are usually crossing somewhere into the sports realm, and you see that. So I'm looking forward to finding opportunities and working together, too, Bill. Well, thank you both for having me and agreed. Always would love <laughs> to collaborate on fun and interesting ideas. I think you'll see that the private law firm is a great experience, even yes. if in-house was where you uh, where you started. Well, thanks again, Bill. Yeah. So, Malcolm, uh, let's wrap it up for today. What did you think of that uh, discussion? Did you learn anything from Bill? I sure did. I learned about how I'm not in the right demographic and my ideas about the slow growth of soccer are basically thrown out the window. So, basically, Bill insulted me the entire time. <laughs> No, 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 not at all. I, I thought it was fascinating. I thought it was enjoyable. And I think it went the way that we had structured and had it planned. What do you think, Hunter? Well, I mean, I think it was interesting that uh, rather than get into the weeds of legal issues about the regulation of gambling or the changes in Supreme Court precedent, he was focused on it like a business person. He understood very much the revenue sources and challenges to those revenue sources, the competition, the needs of investors, the profile of investors, the struggle that investors who are, you know, challenged uh, right now, maybe even distressed, uh, how they're dealing with it. Um, and he has a sort of long view of it. You know, he's comparing it to generational changes in other sports as well as global changes. So I, I think it's endlessly fascinating. Whenever I travel in Latin America, football is something that everyone's always talking about. And maybe next time uh, that I am able to do that, which I hope will be soon, uh, yes. I'll be well prepared by Bill to keep up my end of the conversation. Yeah, I was very uh, happy to, to learn that Bill took his GC experience and blended it with business experience. And I think that's what he communicated to us all, because a lot of times, as we know, that transition causes you to be more regulatory uh, and myopic in your view. And Bill demonstrated he doesn't need any training in that regard. No, he certainly doesn't. All right, Malcolm, till next time. It's great to see you. Looking forward yes, to we'll you next time. We shall tune in and tune out. Great to have everybody listening and participating. Cheers.